These two goats, Mama and Razzie, are very, very pregnant. I calculated their due date as next Tuesday, seven days from today. They both have made big bags, as Clifton would say. They're uncomfortable and Mama's angry. She butts poor Razzie without any provocation. This is Ernie Johnson, founder of the Anashira Company and owner of these two very pregnant goats. I got a question from Travis, who lives somewhere in this neck of the woods. He asked me, how did one know if goats were happy? Well, I am not an expert on goats, but I have some observations to share. When a goat stands next to you and scratches her head on your leg, she's probably happy. When she nuzzles your hand with her nose, she's happy. When she follows you alongside the fence of the pasture, bleeding at you as you walk home after feeding her, she's happy. Travis Inn asks, how do you make a goat happy? Well, food is a good way to make most animals happy. These goats have their own internal clocks. When I show up on time to feed them, they're happy. Giving them treats is a good way to promote happy feelings. I talk to them a lot. I ask them about their day, other things. I don't know how much they understand, but they seem to enjoy it. Brushing them out is another story. Mama loves it and will stand there patiently. Razzie hates it like she's being tortured. I know they don't like being yelled at. One day when Mama was butting Razzie very hard, I yelled at her to stop several times. She made me pay for that for several days. Wouldn't look at me. Didn't want to be scratched. Didn't want to be around me at all. My wife Dawn asked me after the last podcast, how did you get close enough to the tiger to give him the sedative? Well, Dr. Pauline used a dart, a tranquilizer dart, delivered by an air rifle. When I left you last episode, I had just met with the Burgermeister of Oberhausen and spoken about leading a group of young English men and women on a visit to Germany. There are a few things I have to talk about before getting to those Englishmen, so let's get going with this week's story. the Ruhrgebiet area in Germany was a major producer of coal from underground mines. Oberhausen was the center of this industry. This coal was used to generate heat as in our house's small furnace which heated water for the cast iron radiators to generate electricity and to produce steel by heating the huge Hochofen blast furnaces that were found all over the area. Burning so much coal produced polluted air that could be seen and smelled. I remember heading to school early in the mornings. It would still be dark, and I'd get out of the bus and smell this distinct odor. There was even a local saying, Morgens muss man eine Zigarette rauchen, um die Lungen auszuputzen. In the morning, one must smoke a cigarette in order to clean out the lungs. It's strange. Every now and then today, I'll walk in a city with buses going by and trucks 
and notice the same city smell and think, that's like Oberhausen. We're sitting around one Saturday afternoon, and Fatih says, Ernst, you had an enjoyable time in Holland? Yes, I did. You learned some things? Yes, I believe so. This American girl, Karen, she's a nice girl? Yes, she's all right. Would you like to invite her here to see Germany, maybe for a long weekend? I thought I could take you and her and Ulrich down in a coal mine to see what it is like. Sure, sounds very interesting, I said. So I wrote Karen to see if she wanted to catch a train to Oberhausen and spend a few days. I gave her the dates that we were thinking of. She wrote back, great, I'll be there. Uli and I picked her up at the train station in Duisburg, took her to meet the family, and gave her a tour of the area. At dinner, Fatih explained, Tomorrow, we're going deep underground. We want to get there early. We will dress as the miners do, and you will see how coal is dug and brought out. So we hit the sack early and got up very early. Fatih took us to the mine. We saw big head frames above us that supported the pulley wheels and the cables that held the elevators in the mine shaft. We dressed in white coveralls with helmets and a light. We went to the shaft and got into a cage for miners. Next to us was another shaft for the ore skips, which transported the ore to the surface. The cage door clanged shut and we headed down way down. There was a figure in the local newspapers in the comic sections called Kumpel Anton, Companion Anton. He spoke in the local slang called Kolimpot dialect. The Kolimpot meaning Ruhrgebiet or Ruhr Basin, the basin of coal, the slang of this area. Each day they'd have a short story or a joke featuring Anton's fractured slang, such as, instead of, are there still grizzly bears? I find that Anton is a quintessential coal miner in the Kolenpot. The greeting when you meet someone in a coal mine is, it isn't, guten tag, but is, glück auf, which has no exact translation but comes from something like, Ich wünsche dir Glück to einen neuen Gang auf. I wish you luck in opening a new load. And it also expressed a desire that miners would return safely from the mine after their shift. So we learned to call out, Glück auf! Fatih explained that the saying possibly originated at the end of the 1500s in the ore mountains of Saxony. Miners entered the mines on foot using ladders. He said, imagine, after a 10-hour shift of digging the earth, a miner faced a challenging and dangerous two hours of climbing up. If he slipped, he'd fall down the shaft to his death. They all needed a bit of luck to negotiate the trip safely. Glück means luck. Auf means up. Glück auf! We finally got down and walked the shafts and saw some incredible dinosaur-like excavation machines 
It was hot, and the air was filled with coal dust, which penetrated everywhere. We rode a train to the end of one of the deeper levels. The three of us young people looked at each other. No way would any of us end up as a coal miner. At the end of the day, we rode the cage back up to light and clean air and safety. I must have said Glück auf a hundred times during that day. Our clothes and faces and hands were black with coal dust, and we hadn't even done any mining. We went to the showers with the miners, except for Karen. I'd never imagined so much Kolumpot dialect spoken. Uli said to me later, I didn't even understand half of what they were saying. We got home and sat like zombies during supper. Fatih had us relate all our adventures in English so Karen could participate. Well, said Muti, I suppose you're all so tired you'll go to bed early. No, we have to show Karen some of our German nightlife, said Uli. We might not be out too late, though. There was a new nightclub in town, a discotheque, something I'd never seen in the States. Heck, I'd never even been to a bar. The discotheque was called Don Quixote. It took me a while to realize that it was named after Don Quixote. When I was over there, everyone in our generation loved rock and roll. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Beach Boys, Manfred Mann, the list goes on and on. Every time I go to a party or someplace they were playing music, people would want me to give them the lyrics. I probably knew the lyrics for no more than 20% of the songs myself. So they're playing the Stones' Street Fighting Man. When we walk in, a bunch of our pals meet us. Ernst, was singt er denn? Kip uns die Wörter. What's he singing? Give us the words. Tell us every word. They wanted to sing along. You seem pretty cool if you could sing along with Mick Jagger on the dance floor. Of course, there was no way in those days to go to Google and search for lyrics. So I started out. Hey, so my name is called Disturbance. I'll shout and scream. I'll kill the king. I'll rail at all his servants. Please, ants, write it down here on this napkin. I was so tired of this. What does it mean? How do you explain? I'll kill the king. I'll rail at all his servants. And then they're playing the Beach Boys. Good vibrations. Come on, Ernest. Just this song. Bitte, bitte. Please, please. I got to the start of the chorus. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me excitations. Mm, bop, bop, mm, ah, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And it hit me. That's where Karen comes in. Hey, folks, this is our friend Karen. She sings in a rock and roll band in California. She's going to be a star one day. Man, those guys all got excited. Karen says to me, that's a complete exaggeration. I've sung with a small folk group. I'm never going to be a star. Well, I said so only she could hear it. Just go along with it. You just may become famous one day. So that was it. I was free. The rest of the night, Karen had a circle of new friends as she wrote down lyrics and told stories of the bands. We were exhausted that night. More like morning 
when Uli drove us home in that Opal Cadet. We all sat down at breakfast in the morning and told how Karen, the California rock and roll star, had made friends with a bunch of young Germans. I saw Karen again that August, before we flew out of Amsterdam for New York. We sent a few letters back and forth after that, but I never saw her again. So I was back in school getting ready for those young people to arrive from Middlesbrough. One evening at our light supper, Muti said to me, Ernst, you said you never went to many parties or nightclubs back in California? That's right. You never drank beer or wine with your family? Never. Never told them I drank anything. So they wouldn't be happy if they knew of your active social life in Germany? And that's putting it mildly. So you're not going to give them all the details? Never. They're not as accepting or tolerant as you and Fatih. Well, we think your behavior is excellent. We don't worry about you at all. You know, it felt good to hear that from her. So I met the kids from Middlesbrough. All were super excited to be in Germany. We went to see the sights in the daytime and had several receptions at night. We were hosted by the mayor and other muckety-mucks, and I translated for them when it was necessary. One night we went to the Don Quixote discotheque. They met Uli and Kai and I announced from the DJ's mic in German, anyone who wants a translation of any rock and roll song or any other, grab one of my guests from the United Kingdom. They're delighted to help. Oh, we had a fine culture exchange that night. There was a young married couple along as chaperones, Oscar and Anne. I was so glad they were there as these kids weren't the most mature I'd ever seen. Not bad kids, not at all. Just very energetic and boisterous, somewhat unrestrained. They were all excited about going to West Berlin. This was during the coldest part of the Cold War. They had read John le Carre's novels about spies in East Germany and were very knowledgeable of the East-West conflict. So I reviewed our planned itinerary with the chaperones, and we got set for an early departure from Oberhausen. It was sort of an odd role for me to play. On my earlier trip, I had been one of a crowd, no responsibility, no pressure. Now I was seen as the experienced world traveler. Oscar took the microphone on the bus. Now, we are an hour away from the border of the German Democratic Republic. I've asked Ernie to explain to you what we'll encounter. He's done this before. Please pay attention to him. Ask him any questions you might have. So I took the mic and I told them what to expect. I told them the process that we would go through. I reviewed the history of the border, of how they should keep quiet and not make any jokes in front of the guards. I may have painted the FOPOS, the People's Police, a bit more menacing, more savage than they actually were. But I had John le Carré on my mind. They had lots of questions and I answered them, answered them all. By the time we were done, we were at the border. I tell you, they paid attention to me. They were attentive and quiet as we went through passport control. 
Once we got over the border and were in East Germany, there was a slight sense of relief. The questions continued. Where are all the cars? There just aren't many. What if we stopped the bus and got out to look around? Well, we'd be swarmed with security police and it wouldn't be a pretty sight. What if we saw someone on the side of the road and stopped to pick him up? Well, ditto to the last, except uh, a lot more uncomfortable for us. Is this the only way to travel to West Berlin? No, there are two other freeway routes, and you can take the train, or you can fly in to one of two airports, Tempelhof or Berlin-Tegel. We drove through East Germany, and as on my prior trip, the mood was subdued. I got on the mic and gave them clear instructions for how to behave when we hit passport control before West Berlin. The Fopos behaved in the same Neanderthal manner as always when they collected passports and searched the bus. They scared the kids. We got through finally, and again, cheers of relief. I didn't cheer this time. I kind of felt like an old hand. So we drove to our Jugendherberge, youth hostel. These were pretty primitive in those days. There was a girl's section, a boy's section, two wooden bunk beds in each room, four kids, one large bathroom for each sex, pretty Spartan, but who cared? We were in West Berlin. We had a group meeting in the mess hall and reviewed our itinerary. We'd visit the same places I had with that ICYE group, Kaiser Wilhelm Memory Church, Shopping on the Kurfürstendamm, the Olympic Stadium. We'd spend a day going through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, visit a couple of art museums, and so on. Questions? Hands went up. Yes? You told us about that nightclub from the 1920s and 1930s that still exists? Yes. Can we go there tonight? Yeah, I think so. Is this a place with a telephone on each table? Original telephone from the 1930s? Yeah, I I think. They're pretty old. How do you know which table to call? Well, each table has a lamp, a round globe, with a two-digit number on it. You dial that number, and that phone rings. How do we know who to call? That's your issue. You see someone you like, dial the number... I think you can manage. What's this place called? It's called Ballhaus Berlin. Oh my, everyone was excited. Oscar and Anne stood up. Okay, everyone. We want to remind you of the rules. Curfew of this hostel is midnight. The entrance will be shut and locked. If you get home after that, you'll spend the night outside. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Sure. So when the bus leaves the Ballhaus at 11.30 p.m., you be on it. And after 11 p.m. is quiet time here. Be good ambassadors of your country. Yes, sir. No problem. Any more questions for Ernie? Yes. Can we go to a concentration camp? No, the Nazis didn't have those camps close to Berlin. Is there some kind of camp we can see? I'll look into it. I'll let you know. So we went to Ballhaus Berlin after dinner. 
We all had a great time. It felt like we were in Berlin in the 1930s. Ever see the movie Cabaret? That's what it was like. The Germans who were there got lots of practice on their English, that's for sure. And thank God for the curfew. If those kids hadn't been forced to be on that bus by 11.30, they'd probably still have been there at 5 o'clock in the morning. And the next day, people were moving rather slowly. Breakfast wasn't too elegant. The ubiquitous Brötchen with butter and marmalade, cold-boiled eggs and bananas. Simple but filling. We spent part of the day walking down the Berlin Wall. We climbed to viewing platforms and looked out over the death strip. We encountered a number of memorial crosses built at the site of the deaths of the people who'd been killed trying to escape. The wall was fairly young, but already almost a hundred people had been killed. We stood at a memorial cross and plaque to a man called Peter Fechter. He had been shot after crossing the death strip before climbing the six and a half foot high wall topped with barbed wire. It was on Zimmerstrasse, a block away from Checkpoint Charlie, which was guarded by American soldiers. Peter and his friend Helmut were apprenticed as bricklayers. They hated the political situation in East Germany and wanted a better life in the West. One day they discovered a dilapidated building that faced Zimmerstrasse and extended almost to the wall. They snuck inside. When they heard voices, they feared they might be discovered and ran in their socks to the wall. When the first shots were fired, Helmut said Peter remained motionless. I had reached the wall by then, jumped up, and forced myself through the barbed wire on top of the wall. I don't know why Peter didn't climb up. He should have been at the wall before me. I called out loudly to him, come on, come on, hurry up. But he didn't move. The two fugitives were shot at from both sides without warning. Four border guards fired a total of 35 shots. Peta was shot in the pelvis in view of hundreds of witnesses. He fell back into the death strip screaming. Despite those screams, he received no medical attention from the East German side and he could not be attended by those on the West. Peter Fechter was only 18 years old. He lay there screaming and bleeding. No one from the East did anything. His screams got weaker. In an hour, he was dead, still crumpled on the ground at the base of the wall. His memorial states, Er wollte nur die Freiheit. He only wanted freedom. We passed many memorials. In all, there were 136 documented deaths and probably many others at the wall. It was a sad afternoon for all of us. The next day was not much easier. We sat down after breakfast to review our plans for the day, and I said, There is no concentration camp near here to visit, but there is a memorial at the Strafgefängnis Plötzensee, the Plötzensee prison. It became notorious during the Nazi era as one of the main sites of executions of many Germans. They all wanted to see the site. 
we took our bus to the Charlottenburg neighborhood. It was one of 11 selected central execution sites established in 1936 by order of Adolf Hitler himself. From 1937, the convicts were beheaded with a guillotine installed in a backyard workstation. In 1942, a steel beam was installed in that same room with eight meat hooks serving as a gallows for up to eight people at a time. We stood and stared at the gallows. We read the original execution orders. We learned that Hitler was never the same after the attempted bomb blast of July 20th, 1944. He ordered eight of the plotters to be hanged by piano wire, naked, while cameras rolled. Film and stills from that ghastly scene were sent to Hitler so he could view them at his convenience. Between August 1944 and the following April, 90 people were executed in Plötzensee who were either thought to belong to the resistance circles involved in that attempted coup of July 1944 or who supported the conspirators. It was not the most uplifting afternoon we'd had. The next day, we walked from the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church through the Tiergarten, a huge park in the center of Berlin, designed as a spacious, tranquil area where one could recover and relax. From the middle, we could see the famous Brandenburg Gate, which was on the border of East Berlin and inaccessible to us. We could also see the ruins of the Reichstag building, which had been burned in 1933 and blamed by the Nazis on a Dutch communist, and they attributed it to communist conspirators in general. That event is considered pivotal to the establishment of Nazi Germany. And we did relax and savor this last afternoon of ours in West Berlin, Little did I know as I stood at the victory column in the center of these gardens that if I had turned around 180 degrees and looked east for about 600 meters, I would have seen a tall building just in front of the Spree River that was called Studentenwohnheim Sigmundshof or Sigmundshof Student Housing. Little did I know that in two years, I'd be back in West Berlin living in that building and attending the Freie Universität, the Free University. So we left the next day and drove back to Oberhausen, where the kids from Middlesbrough, well, not really kids, spent one more night before heading home. I was exhausted. I still had a few more months in Germany, and there were a few things that I still want to share with you, but not today. I want to thank those folks from Anashira, our sponsors. I've told you before that they leave me alone and let me choose the stories I tell. But they asked me recently, please try not to spend as much time talking about Russian war memorials and East German guards. We don't think those stories inspire people to buy soap. I said I'd think about it. Okay, I've considered the request. Next week, I will not talk about the DDR or Russia or the Berlin Wall. Well, except maybe in passing. But please, folks, you might consider going to the website anashira.com and purchasing a few bars of soap to kick off springtime. 
a shower with a bar of my deep forest soap will help you appreciate the greening of the trees and the nearly green hillsides. Thanks for listening to these podcasts. Join me in a fortnight for my next episode of Stories from Anashira.